Like I've been worried about supply chain security for years now, but up until you know, maybe halfway through last year, people looked at me like I was crazy and this wasn't a big deal. Every company in the world now is trying to figure out what their supply chain is. In general, it's just kind of too hard and too expensive to sign software in an open source context, so people just don't do it. You are listening to the Kubelist Podcast, a show interviewing project maintainers for CNCF Sandbox, Incubating, and Graduated Projects. We'll discuss each project to understand where it came from and discuss the roadmap and plans to continue the project. Hi, I'm Mark Campbell. I publish the Kubelist weekly newsletter dedicated to Kubernetes and the CNCF ecosystem. I'm the founder and CTO at Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors like Puppet, Harness, HashiCorp, Sneak, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem software. Check us out at replicated.com. The Kubelist podcast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. Finally, sign up for the Kubelist weekly newsletter and read previous issues at kubelist.com. On this episode of the Kubelist podcast, we had an opportunity to discuss a topic that's been in the news a lot recently, securing the software supply chain. Dan Lawrence from Google joined us to chat about the work he's been doing under the SigStore project. There's a lot happening here, and it's all exciting to see. If you haven't started thinking about securing a supply chain, it's important to realize there are two sides to consider, publishing the software and then verifying or consuming the software. We spent a good amount of time on both of these challenges in this episode. If you are new to understanding the challenges of securing a supply chain or someone deep in the weeds working on a solution, I hope this episode has something useful. Hi again, and welcome to another episode of the Kubeless Podcast. Of course, Benji's here with me for this episode, and we have a fun conversation planned. Hey, Benji. Hey, Mark. Thanks for uh, having me back. It's always fun to co-host this with you. I'm super excited to, to dig into this week's. Great. So today we're here with Dan Lawrence, a software engineer at Google, to talk about the SigStore project that's part of the Linux Foundation. Welcome, Dan. Thanks. Thanks for having me on here today. Okay. So before we start talking about the project and security and supply chains, I'd love to learn a little bit more about your background, Dan. What can you tell us about your role at Google and what led you to end up kind of doing this on a day-to-day basis? Sure. Yeah. So I've been at Google for a little over eight years now, like coming up on nine years. And I've been in the kind of developer tools and cloud space for almost the entire time uh, since before cloud was called cloud at Google. Um, I started on the App Engine team, which is like a little platform as a service. It's been around for a long time since before platform as a service really became a buzzword too. In that area, I was doing much developer tooling stuff and got on board the container bandwagon pretty early when Kubernetes uh, started to take off, both inside Google and outside. Uh, I had a dev tools background, and uh, Kubernetes was missing a, an easy way to run it locally, so I started the Minikube project pretty early on. Um, and that was my first real uh, foray into open source software. Uh, so it was my first time working on Git, GitHub, uh, and working upstream with open source projects. And it was a great experience, uh, but that kind of led me down this long journey of open source supply chain and supply chain security. Um, I was used to working inside Google, where we have you know, this crazy monorepo and custom build tooling that's great and has awesome security aspects, but doesn't really exist and doesn't make sense outside of that internal environment that Google had set up. Um, so I was used to you know, having really good provenance and records of everything we had deployed everywhere. And then I was on GitHub pushing Minikube builds from my laptop, publishing them on GitHub, and people were just kind of downloading these things and running it as root on their laptops all over the world. And it was kind of terrifying. I spent a couple of years just you know trying to do that as securely as I could and just kind of kept going down this rabbit hole of finding out how bad the state of you know, open source and third-party supply chains are in general uh, and trying to improve that. Involved in some other open source projects like Tecton uh, CD, which is another Linux Foundation project in the Continuous Delivery Foundation, also aimed at uh, kind of modernizing and making secure supply chains a little bit easier. Uh, and then this year started the SigStore project with a bunch of other great folks from Red Hat and a whole bunch of other organizations. That's a great background. And yeah, like, I mean, I think the early days of Kubernetes, the, the Minikube story, it'd be a great topic to dig into sometime. I think we've, we've talked to the K3S team and there's micro Kates and there's like this whole <laughs> ecosystem of, you know, run locally. But yeah. yeah, I mean, kind of going back to your story, I can imagine, you know, you're used to this really low friction, like high trust, like supply chain process at Google and you, you like all of the benefits that you get. And then that like, I don't know, lack of a better way to describe it, that like dirty feeling of like, I just compiled some code and pushed it to a release and now people are running it. Like, <laughs> it's a little scary. Yeah. Yeah. 
So let's just jump right in here. Um, so SIGSTOR, the project that you started, it's a part of the Linux Foundation and the website, by the way, like new website, it looks really great. I think the website defines it as, quote, a new standard for signing, verifying, and protecting software. I'd like to dig into, like, what does this mean? What's the scope of the project? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. And there's a, a whole bunch of different parts of SIGSTOR, um, too, that kind of make it a little bit harder to talk about in you know, one sentence. So I think that one's the best we could come up with you know, in one sentence. But we can, we can dive in quite a bit here. Yeah, the idea for SIGSTOR, um, the easiest way to describe it is probably through you know, comparing it to other projects. We studied the kind of you know, state of software supply chain metadata and integrity for a while and talked to a ton of different open source projects and ecosystems and communities to figure out why they were signing stuff, why they weren't, where they were struggling. And it started to look a lot like uh, kind of what HTTPS and you know, certificates in the browser looked like you know, five or six years ago before Let's Encrypt came into the picture. In general, it's just kind of too hard and too expensive to sign uh, software in an open source context, so people just don't do it. Um, and that's what you know, HTTPS and browsers used to be like. Uh, you had to pay some CA a bunch of money, you had to email them a fancy formatted uh, certificate request, they would send you something back, you had to figure out how to copy the things around, you had to remember to keep doing it, uh, you had to pay extra for fancier certificates, all that stuff. Uh, so people just didn't do it for the most part. Um, and then Let's Encrypt came around with a mission of kind of making certificates free, automated, and easy. And now all of a sudden everybody does it in their browsers, right? Um, I don't remember the last time I went to a web page that didn't have a certificate now. Uh, so it's kind of hard to remember, but five or six years ago, that was not the case at all. So we try to copy that playbook. And a lot of the technology uh, is the same too, or kind of parallel to it. Um, instead of encrypting web traffic, we're signing software. SIGSTOR has a certificate authority to issue certificates just like Let's Encrypt does, um, except instead of verifying websites, we verify people. Um, and so we've tried to package all of this up in an easy way to make it so people can get these certificates you know, with just one command, not have to manage keys, not have to worry about any of that stuff. Um, so that's kind of the overall scope and idea for SIGSTOR. It just kind of leads down a whole bunch of other complicated technical paths and stuff we have to implement to make all of that possible. <laughs> That's great. So, like, kind of drawing the parallels between Let's Encrypt making TLS, you know, creation management a lot easier. That helps uh, map it a little bit better. One of the things that's like important, though, right, is like you're both publishing. Like on the Let's Encrypt side, you're both creating the cert, and then the browser has to be able to trust that cert and verify it. So I assume that like both parties are still involved here, right? Like the ability to just sign an image isn't that useful unless somebody the other side has tooling and able to, to, to verify those images. Is that also what SIGSTOR is being part of, or are you like relying on other community tools for that? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, the overall idea is, yes, it's to make it easy to sign and verify containers, but that's just kind of one piece of, you know, the overall problem. The big problem is we've got to make it easy to find out, you know, what went into the software you're using, um, who wrote that, uh, what all the dependencies were. We can talk about SBOMs and some other techniques to do that a little bit later. But yeah, it's not just signing. Signing is the easy part. Um, verifying and finding the right keys to verify against is the hard part. Um, Let's Encrypt, uh, and this is you know one area where it's differ a little bit, um, Let's Encrypt was trying to enter you know an entrenched area with you know a full web PKI ecosystem and process for getting trusted by browsers and everything like that. We kind of have to be both sides of that coin here in SIGSTOR because there really aren't any ways to verify uh, signatures or certificates or identities in the open source world. Um, so it's a little bit easier, it's also a little bit harder in some ways. You know, we don't have a complicated process uh, that we have to follow to get trusted. We just have to kind of make that up ourselves and get people to trust us. Okay, so it's it's not a new problem to go solve, but you're trying to solve, like, it's an unsolved problem. There's no kind of de facto, like, major player that you're trying to say, like, we're going to make this easier. You're just saying, hey, this is a really complicated problem that's, like, various different pieces along the way, making it kind of intimidating for me as an engineer or me as a as somebody who's uh, going to ship some code to ship something that's signed and verifiable and has a secure supply chain. Exactly. Given that, there's actually, there's other, like, let's call it prior art in this field. There's, like, tools like Notary for signing or the Update Framework, mm -hmm. um, Tough uh, in Toto. Uh, there's lots of other stuff. I'm, I, I'm not going to attempt to try to name all of them here. I'm kind of curious, like, how the work you're doing at SIGSTOR either complements this or builds on the work that already exists or maybe attempts to replace some of it. Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. The other kind of, before we get into tough notary in Toto, there there are kind of some some other prior art here. Um, and if you look at kind of like the you know Microsoft 
ecosystem where if you want to ship a Windows driver, you have to go get a certificate signed by one of these you know, code signing CAs and they require the EV stuff where they do a background check on you and verify your business has the right address and you pay hundreds and hundreds of dollars for this. But otherwise, you can't ship a driver that will run on Windows. So there are a couple other parallels like this, like Apple runs one of these for the Mac store. Uh, they just Nobody's really aiming to do it as a, in a general purpose way, especially for open source. Um, so those are some some pretty good parallels too. On the open source side, though, like you mentioned, yeah, there there have been some efforts here before too. Notary was an effort kind of built on top of the update framework, baked into Docker registries. It was called Docker Content Trust when it was in Docker Hub, and a couple other cloud providers implemented it. Um, this was a way to kind of sign and verify the authenticity of container images uh, using the update framework. It unfortunately never saw ton of adoption. Uh, there were a couple problems with it, with the first implementation of it, uh, mostly around the registries themselves. The container registries didn't support enough APIs and flexibility in the metadata they could store to do this in the registry protocol itself, which is managed by the OCI or the Open Containers Initiative. So to stand up a notary server, you actually had to run and deploy this whole extra server, an extra piece of infrastructure with you know, a whole open source database. So it was really a pain to manage, and so people just didn't do it since it didn't work across registries. The update framework itself is a, a great tool set, and even more importantly, it's a great way to think about supply chain risk and key management and signatures and all of that stuff together. Um, it started in academia. It's not really a piece of software you can just pick up and start using, although there are some client libraries and command line tools that are starting to get a little bit better. But it's not meant to be like a drop-in uh, signing tool or verification tool. It's a kind of a way of thinking <laughs> about the problem and a, you know, a checklist of things you should t- keep in mind when designing an update system. Um, and so, yeah, Notary was built on top of that, and a whole bunch of the SIG store components are built on top of that, too. And I actually just wrote a blog post about how some of the confusing nature of it, where we use the update framework to protect parts of SIG store, but then we also allow people to use the update framework themselves on top of SIG store. I called it like the, the tough sandwich, um, <laughs> kind of how uh, the update framework is on top of and underneath everything that we're doing. And Toto uh, is another great project uh, for metadata formats and policy formats that let you kind of attest to what happened in a supply chain. So what happened in a build process, uh, what inputs went into something, what outputs came out, what steps happened in the middle there. Just got a bunch of kind of like envelope formats to describe that. Uh, and then ways to sign those, link them together, do checks later to make sure what happened is what you thought should have happened. Um, and it's also integrates with the update framework and stuff like that. Uh, so with Sigstore, we also support storing a lot of that stuff in our transparency logs and querying it. So if people are producing these in total files, then you can start to build up this awesome graph of like what went into my software, what went into that software, how, who built it, and all that stuff. Yeah, backing up a second here, but to kind of build on the dependency graph stuff that you were just alluding to. Sure. <laughs> kind of a layman's question here. What are we trying to solve with signing of packages? I mean, just going back up like 10,000, 40,000 feet here, <laughs> ultimately, I, I think I always, when trying to describe what I think of software supply chain stuff is, is I'm like, it's dependency management. <laughs> like that, I always kind of breaks down to that ultimately. But obviously, there's some, the, some pretty important nuances there. So just high level, I'm a noob, I'm walking into this. Why do I want to sign my packages? What's the motivation here? What is the supply chain? How does that all work? <laughs> yeah, that's another great question. I think um, you know, signing itself is really, really simple. Um, and I think it leads to a bunch of confusion on what it actually does and why you might want to do it. Um, and in fact, there are a lot of ways to get a lot of these same supply chain guarantees without signing. And depending on how you sign, you might not actually be getting anything. So yeah, there are a lot of misnomers and stuff here, which would be awesome to talk through and clarify a little bit. You mentioned dependency management as kind of you know, one way to think about the overall problem. That's a good way to, to talk about it. I, I think I, I have a slightly different take where I split it up into two different problems when I talk about overall supply chain risk, especially for open source. The way I look at it, there are two main problems here. And one is that we don't know the dependencies that we're using. All right, You might have an idea of it, but you can't tell. Like None of this metadata is verifiable. Like you know, An example here, if you go to PyPy, uh, the Python package registry, and you, know, you search for a package, it'll show you a little uh, Git repo uh, link on the left-hand side. Right? That is not real, right? Anybody can just type any Git URL they want in there, and you have no way to prove that the Python package you downloaded actually did come from that Git repo. For the most part, maintainers do the right thing, uh, but in security, we have to worry about the ones that don't. 
And so we have this supply chain, but you can't actually write it down or verify it. So even if you know the top level things that went into your code, you don't know what went into them. You don't know where, where these things actually came from. And so signing is one technique to actually allow people to start publishing that in a way that you can verify it later. So step one is actually just knowing what went into your build and what went into your dependencies and what went into the dependencies of those dependencies kind of all the way down. Uh, because we're working you know, across organizations, across companies, across open source projects, and we can't really trust the communication channel really where all these things get packaged and stored. Uh, so instead, you sign metadata and put it there so people can verify it later. That's one half of the problem, right? just understanding the dependencies. And then you can start to manage them, you can start to update them, you can start to look for vulnerabilities and that kind of thing. Which leads to the second half of the problem, which is just that you know all open source software has bugs in it. All software has bugs in it, and open source software isn't magically secure just because it's public and you can look at it, right? So even if you know all the dependencies in your code, there might still be tons of known CVs and unknown CVs in it that you've got to constantly figure out how to manage and update and patch. Uh, but if you don't know the first half of that problem, if you don't even know what's in your code, you can't start to tackle the management problem. Um, and at the same time, getting perfect signatures everywhere doesn't mean your code is bug-free. So you kind of have to tackle the two problems in parallel. So kind of hearkening back to the older days of the internet, when I would go to download FileZilla, was that what it was? What was the old FTP thing? Anyways, uh, one of these old FTP programs, and it would say, hey, this is the hash uh, of the executable you're downloading. And I, I'm pretty sure that was mostly so that you could just validate there's no like man-in-the-middle attack for the download itself. Same type of thing for dependency management. I am using this Python package from PyPy, and this is just an automated way to say, hey, this is really what I think it is. Um, and so it builds that trust chain. So so that's just one side of the problem. And the other side of the problem is, okay, well, now I know what all the stuff is, but I have no idea what's broken in the stuff. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and Okay, yeah. So that's a very descriptive way to all the stuff is, but no, it's broken in the stuff. Right, but this is a massive problem. I mean, this is like kind of a computer science 101 to me in the sense that like you got to know what you're using. You got to know your uh, your software bill of materials almost, if you will. So yeah, this is a massively challenging project. So the place you guys are starting is just the physical ability, uh, similar to Let's Encrypt, to sign a particular package because we haven't even defined that. So that's kind of what this whole, the whole, the whole, the foundation of this whole project is. And then we have all these other projects you're building on top of that. Maybe there's a good opportunity to kind of talk high level uh, about some of those other projects that you have and, and how you're leveraging the, uh, you know, this, the signing stuff. Yeah, perfect. So yeah, just to, to wrap up the signing, and I think it's a good transition into some of the other use cases here, like the S-bombs and software build materials, like you mentioned. Um, you know, signature by itself doesn't really do much, right? It tells you that I had a private key and I used it to sign this artifact. That's really all it means. It, it can't convey that the artifact is good. It can't convey when I built it. It can't convey what went into it. Just that I had that key. It might have been on a YubiKey. I might have just memorized it um, and I signed it. Nobody else could have done that unless they stole my key. Um, and so that's the the base step, right? It means that I you know, took some action to sign this thing and handed it to you, and you can check that I took some action. Uh, but that action is kind of implicit. The intent is all implicit. Right? I didn't tell you why I signed it or what I wanted to tell you about that, only just that I had kind of a Boolean yes. <laughs> I said yes, this package kind of thing. That might be a little meta and hard to understand, so we'll make it a bit more concrete here. Right? Um, that's great because it's hard to do and it you know it gives you a bunch of guarantees. I mean, somebody else didn't come in the middle, change the package or something like that. Uh, but what we really want the ability to do is start making more powerful statements about you know the packages that we're using. Um, if I built something from a specific git commit, right, you might want to know what git commit it was built at so you can look at that and you know, scan it for CVs or something. A signature by itself can't do that. Uh, but instead what we can do is you know just add another level of indirection. That's one of the other CompSci 101 <laughs> techniques. So instead of signing the package, we can just you know write a little uh, description down, the package and some metadata about it. And so I can say, uh, here's the package. You know, this is the digest, so you know, it hasn't been changed. Um, and this is the git commit I built it at, right? 
right? That's a pretty easy way to start thinking about it. And if you sign those two pieces of data together, now somebody can verify it and see not only did Dan signed the package. Dan says that he built the package, um, you know, at this tag on this date, which is now way more powerful than just you know a simple Boolean statement about the package. And you can start to get creative here, and you can start to package up other information there and sign it. Um, and then all of these statements can be shipped together with the package and let people start to do richer queries, richer lookups, um, and start to understand the bigger dependency graph of things that went into the things that they're using, which is really what we need to be able to do. And so a lot of the other parts of Sigstore are designed around that, right? We have a transparency log to publish these uh, statements in. Uh, the statements are called attestations, if you've heard that term. Um, so you can start to do queries on the attestations and look up other things and automate that as part of build processes so people don't even have to think about it. That's kind of the direction we're heading. And so the Sigstore project is... I guess I like to kind of think of it a little bit like an umbrella project, right? There's like, it's actually not like a CLI that I run. It's made of a different projects like Cosign for signing, Recore for transparency logs. Is that the full scope of the project or are there other sub-projects in there? Yeah, so there's one more that's kind of subtle. Another important distinction, I guess, between Sigstore and some open source projects is, yeah, it's these open source projects. Some of them you can download and build yourself. Um, well, all of them you can do that because it's open source. But we're actually operating some of these as services, just like you know, back to the Let's Encrypt model, where there's a transparency log you can build and run you know, internally if you want to. But we also have a public instance of this that we're operating as you know, like a public benefit where anybody can you know, stick their data into the transparency log. So that's Recore. The cosign tool is something you download to sign containers, other stuff that gets stored in OCI registries. And it can, you know, if you flip a flag, you can automatically pull all of that stuff into the transparency log. And if you're verifying, you can verify all the stuff out of the transparency log too. The other one which we talked about, but I guess we can go over the name, the name is Fulcio, F-U-L-C-I-O. This is the certificate authority that can issue certificates for you so you don't really have to manage keys. Um, if you download Cosign, you can either create a key, right? You can use a KMS if you have it. You can use Tough if you've got that set up. Or you can just do Cosign Sign uh, container without a key at all. Um, and that uses the free certificate authority to um, issue you a certificate. A little browser window will pop up to prove your email address. Um, and then you get a certificate issued to that email address for a short period of time that you can sign stuff with. Uh, so you don't have to worry about losing anything. You don't have to worry about people stealing your keys. It's all kind of ephemeral and memory gets deleted, never touches your disk. And these all kind of interact. Uh, the website tries to explain some of this, but it always ends up looking like a complicated spaghetti diagram <laughs> where to do that certificate authority, we need a transparency log to put stuff in so people can check later to make sure that we're doing things correctly. All that stuff. So the the certificate authority and the transparency log are kind of uh, intertwined a bit, uh, but hopefully you don't even need to see them or know about them for the most part. Dan, two quick follow-ups on that. Um, one is when you say we are are providing uh, the central authority stuff. Who, who's we in this particular instance? Yeah, so it's it's the Sigstore community basically running operating under the Linux Foundation is operating all this infrastructure. Um, Google, where I work, is contributing some of the funding for it. Um, it's really, really cheap to run at this point. Um, so it's not a huge dollar amount or anything like that. And then, you know, the Sigstore maintainers are operating that infrastructure as a community effort. Super cool. Um, and then my next question is, and this is kind of a, a little bit of a uh, layman's question here. Can you explain to me with a little bit of detail what a transparency log is? I, I mean, I, I think I can infer from the name, but just talk through the mechanics there a little bit and, and why that's important. Sure. Yeah, we need a whiteboard for this. Um, you know, it took me months and months to really understand all the details of, of transparency logs. Uh, but they actually have a, there's a website now uh, that came out, and it's actually from the same people that helped us with the Sigstore website. So if you want to learn more, go to transparency.dev. There's awesome animations and everything to really explain these concepts. But yeah, transparency log, uh, the simplest is it is a an append-only log that's running somewhere, uh, essentially. People can append stuff into that log. And then there are some techniques you can use to prove that the log was append-only. And so one person is operating the log. Um, they can't tamper with anything that was in there. Uh, people can only add new entries. And then anybody can kind of iterate over the entire log, and anybody can prove that the log has not been tampered with and entries have only been added to it. Um, so to primitive, that's what it does. Uh, and once you can make those guarantees, you can start to build up some cool systems on top of it. Right? These are used, uh, the first time they started to be used in practice widely was certificate transparency, coming back to the, the Let's Encrypt model a little bit. So every time you get a certificate for a website, through Let's Encrypt or anyone else, these CAs, the certificate authorities that issue them, have to write those certificates to a transparency log. 
as part of the requirements for being a certificate authority now. And your browsers actually automatically prove that, that every certificate they're issued is in that log. And that means is a certificate authority can't misbehave now. Um, if they misbehave, they, they can get caught because every certificate they issue is in this log. And if you imagine a kind of sketchy CA sitting somewhere, they could issue a certificate for Google.com or Microsoft.com or something like that. Nothing is stopping them other than the fact that they have to put that in this log on the public record and Google or Microsoft is watching um, and say, hey, wait a minute, uh, that doesn't look like a certificate that we issued. And they can kind of catch and remediate and fix that after the fact. So it's a way to put all behavior on the record. Um, it's not a way to say if something is good or should be trusted. It's just a way to give the world like a global view on what has happened that then you can build up other systems on top of. Very interesting. Forgive me, but uh, you mentioned that it's centralized. Yeah. I think this begs the obvious question of, isn't this a little blockchain-y? Um, should this be a blockchain thing? And... Um, and is that where you're trying to go ultimately, at least from a distributed perspective and not being centralized, but a, a distributed a distributed version of this? Yeah, so they're very similar to blockchains. This comes up all the time. It's you know, The architecture is roughly the same, where it's, uh, it's a Merkle tree, which you can look up, um, but it's just like a hash of a hash of a hash all the way down. The main differences are, you know, it's... It's centralized, which is good and bad. Right? It's centralized, so it's really easy to operate. One person can just stand up a server, you have a URL, you can start working with it. And it's not as scary as it sounds to be centralized, right? because these are transparent. The only thing you really have to trust is that the person will keep it running, because you can verify their behavior. You don't actually have to trust that they'll act correctly. Um, you just have to trust that they can keep this thing running. Or a blockchain kind of you know, it gets distributed and uh, all the computation is happening everywhere all the time. But otherwise, they're, they're pretty similar, except you know, I, I think of it as a blockchain where there's just one element and everybody is writing into that same element. In web PKI, where certificate transparency is a thing, um, it's not quite as centralized, but it still hasn't taken the full jump to be completely distributed. Um, you know, there are dozens of companies that operate independent transparency logs, uh, and then there are requirements that they all kind of gossip between each other, and all the certificates eventually make it across all of them. So it's centralized. There's like, you know, dozens of independent centralized copies of this. Um, I'm not a blockchain expert, but I think these let you get the benefits of a blockchain without having to do the complicated proof-of-work style stuff that allows a blockchain to operate without a single party kind of just coming in and hijacking the entire thing. You could build a lot of this on an established blockchain if you're okay you know, with the carbon footprint and all of that stuff that happens to make it so the blockchain can't just be taken over and hijacked. Or you can just kind of trust that somebody will keep one of these logs up and running. You can have multiple people running their own logs too, kind of auditing each other at the same time. I assume there's a transparency log and you're, you're following all the best practices when building that host service that you have there so we can actually like see into that and have confidence in it too. Yeah, exactly. Every time you run one of these commands, you actually automatically start doing some of these checks to prove that the log is tamper-free and hasn't been you know, mutated before. Um, there's another, actually, implementation of transparency logs going on now that most people use, especially in the cloud-native world, use every day without even thinking about, um, and that's the Go module, uh, SumDB. Um, you might see those go.sum files everywhere. Mm -hmm. But if you see those and you're using Go modules as part of your project, then you're also using the Go module transparency log, which is uh, a way that the Go team built a system to help protect the supply chain of Go modules. Um, the very first time anybody installs you know, your package at version foo, an entry gets created in their transparency log, showing the digest of that package and the exact source that went into it at that tag. So you can be assured that you know, everybody that accesses version foo of your package gets the exact same contents in that package. And anybody running Go commands is verifying that log and making sure um, it's consistent and hasn't been tampered with without even really knowing it. That's awesome. That's a good uh, way to think about it. I think a lot of us are like, you know, Go developers and we're like, we, we have that Go some file. We've seen it. Like we get merge conflicts yeah. <laughs> on it. We have to like clean that up. Yep. <laughs> um, that's cool. Kind of shifting to the next part here. A couple of times, like we've been mentioning software bill of materials or SBOMs. Right. Is that in scope of SIGStore or out of scope? But how do you think about that? <laughs> Yeah, so SBOMs are a hot topic now. They're described uh, to describe the materials that go into a piece of software, right? which makes a ton of sense. Um, if somebody hands you a binary, 
and you want to know what's inside that so you can hook it up to your CV scanner, your notification system, uh, and figure out when you need to rebuild or get a new copy of it. And that's kind of how I see the value in Asphalt 4. There's some challenges with it, right? Like you have to trust that the person generated it correctly. There's no real way to prove that the SBOM uh, is correct, the contents inside of it, because they're giving you information you couldn't have otherwise obtained. So you just kind of have to trust them. But if you're taking a closed source blob from somebody and running it anyway, you kind of trust them implicitly, <laughs> at least a little bit. Otherwise, you shouldn't run their binary. Uh, but that's the kind of future of SBOMs. The US government is working on some uh, regulations to start describing how they should be produced how they should be distributed, that kind of thing. So the actual generation of them is probably out of scope for SigStore. There's dozens of projects that are doing a great job at this today. Uh, You can scan containers and generate SBOMs. You can do it as part of the build process. Um, There's a couple different widely understood industry formats to shift the SBOMs in. But what I think is in scope for SigStore and what we're trying to do is make it easy to distribute them to sign them so they don't get tampered with after they are generated, and then to find them for code that you're running. You know, if you just grab a container, um, there's no easy way to go look up the SBOM for that container if there is one. Um, and so that's the type of thing that we're trying to do for SigStore. So people don't have to email you SBOMs. Uh, you don't have to go build a whole bunch of other systems to find them if you do want them for the stuff you're consuming. It turns out the distribution of those is tricky. And if that's not a, through a trusted source, like, you know, like the whole, like all bets are off then. <laughs> Um, exactly. <laughs> and actually, I love what you're, you're doing there. Like I've, you know, recently added SBOM generation as part of a CI. Hopefully we've, we're doing it accurately. It's an open source project. It's a CNCF project. We added it in and we used Cosign to do it and publish it to an OCI registry. And like, like, I'd love to give you an opportunity to talk about how you're like building on top of the registry and you're using some really cool methods to distribute that that don't involve like net new things that I need to run. <laughs> Cool is one word for it. Hacky is probably another one, but it works. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it's awesome to hear you're doing it as part of the build process uh, too. I think yeah, a lot of the people doing SBOMs today are kind of doing them post facto and scanning a container or doing binary analysis, which is good. But you know, if you can scan your own container, then I could have done that too. So the SBOM isn't really adding a ton of value. It's just saving me a tiny bit of work. So doing it as part of the build process, doing it up front uh, as a way to get more information into them uh, to make them more useful. Uh, which is awesome to see. The way this works in Cosign, um, the way actually all of Cosign works um, with OCI registries uh, is a giant hack, but I love it, and it just works everywhere, um, and it, we didn't need any new capabilities. You know, OCI registries are really simple at storing things. Right? You can upload something there, and you can get it back if you want to. Uh, but they don't really have a way to reference other objects, right? If you upload a container image, um, and then you generate an SBOM for it later, you want to attach that SBOM to that container. That's not something you can do as part of the API today. It's pretty subtle. It's uh, The registries are all kind of content addressable and everything is hashed and hashed different ways. So you can't really attach it to something without changing the digest of the thing you want to attach it to. Uh, so it causes a whole bunch of headaches. Uh, so we solved it with a fun, silly little naming convention in Cosign. Um, so when you want to upload something and attach it to an image, we take the digest of that image um, and just turn that into a name. So it's just a random string. We take that digest. It's not a digest anymore. We convert it to a string, and then we give it a little name with like a dot suffix. So dot signature for signatures, dot SBOM for SBOMs, and we re-upload it. So if you want to find all the SBOMs for an image later, you find the digest for that image. You can calculate the name for where the SBOMs should be and just go download that other separate object. So the registry isn't aware that they're linked in any way, and that's the, the fun little hack that we had to do to get it to work across you know, the dozens of OCI registries in the wild today. <laughs> I, I might call that elegant, just for the record. I, <laughs> I just want to put that out there. I find it to be elegant, but we all kind of know. It's so hacky. I loved it. Yeah. It crossed it's, the it's, chasm. <laughs> yeah. It's like when things are so hot that they're cold, it's like, I feel like that's <laughs> a fair, fair statement there. <laughs> And, you know, we've recently had uh, Josh, you know, one of the maintainers of the um, OCI spec on and, and talking to him about that. And I think like awesome. one of the one of the many takeaways, really, really great conversation. But one of the, the many takeaways was these aren't hacks. This is like the future of like how we want to do storage. And, <laughs> you know, like, let's let's do these like like obviously we need some kind of standards around it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it leads to like, you know, maybe in the future if you know, you have the standardized naming convention and OCI registries exist and there's these, you know, like it's a SHA, so it's cryptographically somewhat linked to the actual source. The registries themselves, like 
the creators, developers can introduce tightly coupled tools that can verify it. So instead of, you know, you see that today with CVE scanning, you know, the registry will show, oh, this one has this many CVEs in it. But at some point it could just link to the SBOM because it knows how to find the SBOM in its own registry. Yeah, that's awesome. The, the CNCF Harbor Registry, I've been following. Uh, they have an RFC out now to start showing some of this stuff in the UI because, you know, we have published the spec for how we're doing this naming. And so they'll, you know, light up little links that show you signatures and SBOMs for all of that stuff, which is going to be awesome to see when that rolls out. There's also a whole bunch of efforts in the OCI itself to figure out ways to improve these APIs so that you can you know, do these lookups in better, slightly less hacky ways um, that interact with garbage collection and copying things around a little bit nicer. Uh, but specs move slowly you know, for good reasons. Uh, you know, dozens and dozens of companies are going to have to implement any changes that actually get made here. So it's good to be careful. It's good to be slow. But it's cool that we can innovate and build some of this stuff in the meantime without having to wait. Yeah, and if it changes, instead of like a different name or a different tag, if it changes to be like, oh, some kind of content type or different header, that's a relatively easy change. But like, you've already said, hey, we're going to push this thing, like after the build into the registry. Exactly. And yeah, the UX for cosine and everything won't change at all. You know, the commands will still be the same. Our APIs will still be the same. We would just kind of switch over how we talk to the registry and it'll just work faster and better for everybody without them even noticing. So shifting gears for a second, Sigstore recently hit 1.0? Uh, the cosine part of Sigstore. Cosine hit 1.0. Yeah, so cosine itself hit 1.0. Up next, we're going to do the transparency log and then the certificate authority probably in that order. Great. So what does that mean? Cosine hit 1.0. <laughs> does that mean like I should start using it in production? It's GA or like you, you met like certain set of features or what did it take to get there? Yeah, it's it, 1.0 for an open source project is always hard uh, to define. Um, but yeah, it means we're comfortable with people using it in production. We're not going to break um, the APIs. We're not going to break the CLI. We've set up so there are some parts that are you know still experimental, and you've got to opt into those, and those are the ones we're still tweaking and tuning. But it's clearly delineated. So if you want to start building uh, stuff to sign and verify containers on top of Cosign, then go for it. We spent a while using it ourselves for a bunch of important container images that we release. Uh, including some that go into the core Kubernetes distribution, like Distroless, if you've heard of that image. Um, that's the base that's used you know, by upstream Kubernetes. So we've been signing that and having Kubernetes verify it before they do their builds for months and months now to test this out and make sure it's all solid. So yeah, go for it. The challenge with this always is that uh, you know a lot of companies, big organizations, don't want to look at something seriously until it's 1.0. And we really want feedback to make sure everything is great before we want to call it 1.0 because it gets harder to change stuff around later. So it's, it's kind of like a, a chicken and egg problem there where you've got to just encourage people to try it, keep encouraging people to try it, get your own feedback, dog food, however you can to get some level of confidence. And then you just call it 1.0 and wait for the feedback to come in later. You said you're, you're going to work on making the transparency log 1.0 next? Yeah, so that's the, the operational service. Basically, there's an API for adding stuff, tailing things out of the log, that kind of thing. Um, it's pretty stable. We have a giant warning on there, though, that we might have to delete the data at any time. Um, and you know that gets into some tricky legal issues we've got to work through a little bit, um, where anytime you put data on the internet forever, that starts to get pretty scary and you let anybody write data into that without being able to delete it. So just some stuff to think through there and figure out uh, you know, playbooks and plans for what happens if uh, the law gets screwed up, how we recover from it, that kind of thing. Um, if you follow the web PKI news much, uh, there was a transparency log actually maybe a month or two ago now where a cosmic ray um, <laughs> flipped a bit on an entry and invalidated all the stuff after that. So they had to figure out how to recover from it and these things do happen. So that's uh, up next on our list. Wow. <laughs> that's one of those things that you, you think about and you're like, theoretically, that could happen. Let's protect against that. But then when you actually read that it happened, it's like, wow, okay, we need the new theoretical. What's the, what's the new fear? <laughs> yeah, it was pretty cool. It's one of those things where, you know, it's this complicated data structure and it just looked completely garbled and people had no idea what, you know, what happened. And then if you actually look at the bytes, it was really just one bit that flipped that caused the whole thing to be screwed up. Uh, there was one zero that should have been a one or something like that. And then if you flip that, it was all completely good and valid. So nothing nefarious happened. Happened. Some kind of you know machine bug or cosmic ray or something caused that one uh, flip, and stuff happens at scale. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's it's worth kind of talking about that technical challenge, right? You're trying to make this immutable, provable audit log, basically, mm -hmm. like the transparency log, and it's like this thing happened, and now this thing happened, and so you, you they're all tied to the things that happened before, as that's how a Merkle tree works. But then if somebody realizes, oh 
last week we accidentally pushed some really sensitive information and we need to delete that. You can't delete that because it invalidates everything below that. And so these are the types of problems that you're, you're trying to solve to get it to a 1.0 so that you can provide some stability guarantees in like a known way how you're going to resolve that. Exactly. Yeah. So we're really careful about all the data that goes in, right? We don't store data itself. We just store the hashes of the data and the public keys and all of that stuff. But all code has bugs. So yeah, we got to keep going through making sure that you know we're not letting any you know crazy illegal stuff get into the log. And uh, yeah, then go through these playbooks around what happens if something gets screwed up and how we recover from it. So there's a lot here. This is a yeah. <laughs> really complex topic. And I think we're going to dive into like at a high level, some of like why everybody's paying attention to this now. But, you know, while we're still kind of thinking about the implementation details in the project and how I would adopt it, there's, there's like two different sides here. There's a publisher who's publishing software and you have dependencies and you're thinking about how to share this information, how to get guarantees that you're publishing what you think you're publishing. And then the other side is on the consumer. You want to take either a binary, a container image, open source software, and consume that. And you've talked a lot about the various aspects of that, but I want to like think, like, okay, I'm an org and I'm like new to this. There's a lot of information here. Do you have any recommendations for like where to start? Should I start with signing? Should I start with transparency logs? How do I get my feet wet here? Yeah, as a publisher, I definitely start by signing your stuff in some way and you know, giving keys out to your consumers so they can verify everything back. Uh, the one piece, if you can only include one piece of metadata on top of the signature, I'm mean, going to do this with like one flag and cosign. You don't need to do anything crazy within Toto or Tough yet. The one thing to include is the commit or something like that. So build a container from a GitHub repo, add the commit SHA in there, sign that whole thing and push it and you're good. Um, there's tons of nuance around key management and everything, but the simplest possible way to do it for an open source project is just check the public key you're using right into the GitHub repo next to your make file or next to your Docker file or something like that. Um, and then people can, from that container, they can follow it back to the GitHub repo. They can see the commit it was built at and they can you know, verify that public key right there. It's not perfect and the update framework and a bunch of other things are better, but they're also a lot more complicated. And this is so much better than just a URL or people having to guess. If you have to rotate the key, then you just check in a new one, and then the new thing gets built from that new commit, and it's automatically tied there, too. So it solves a lot of problems uh, very cheaply for a small open source project. That's great. And then TLS, let's encrypt, kind of going back to that earlier early analogy, right? There's new, and maybe I'm going to take this too far, but we'll, we'll see. There's new top-level domains that come yeah. out that like require TLS. You can't serve services on them like that aren't TLS.app, for example, I think is one of them. Do you like envision that future where Kubernetes is, let's like kind of generically call it like more secure by default or something like this, where like all of this validation uh, when I want to run something is just baked right in and like I can't get around it? Yeah, I hope so. I think you've got to come at it the same way where you just get enough people doing it to the point where it's not like, oh, cool, this person signed their container. It's like, oh, gross, this one hasn't signed their stuff yet. Um, <laughs> so we've got to kind of start getting the momentum shifting that way. And then you can start to, as a large project, as somebody in a you know, central position to affect a lot of supply chains, you can start to think more carefully and you know take bigger risks and you know implement bigger requirements um, in you know the software that you're willing to consume. Kubernetes is a great example again because they are taking this seriously, which they should. It's you know one of the widely used projects in the world. They have new policies for you know what Go modules they'll start to allow in and they're actively trying to reduce the number of dependencies in the tree, uh, which is awesome. And if you don't actively do that, then they just kind of grow over time forever and stuff gets deprecated, then you end up with old, unmaintained, vulnerable stuff in there that's impossible to get out. So, yeah, I think it's it's on everybody to start doing things as responsibly as they can as producers, and then it's on huge projects to start setting standards and requirements for the stuff they're willing to use um, until we get to a point where we can actually start to require and mandate and do this all the right way across the board, like the .dev and the .app stuff you're talking about. And the latest version of Kubernetes, they're actually now starting to generate and publish a, an SBOM with a software bill of materials with the Kubernetes release, which is awesome. Is that using some of the tooling that you've built? Yeah, they uh, they built their own SBOM generator, which is awesome. There wasn't a lot in the Go container space when they got started. Uh, so they built their own. Um, it can scan containers, it can scan Go projects, it can do all of that and stitch it all together into this 
mega S bomb. It's a huge amount of work, and it, it's great because it's it's not custom to Kubernetes. Uh, the tool is just called like Bomb or something like that, I think. Uh, and other projects have started to use it too. Um, it generates stuff in the same format, so you can upload them with Cosine and sign them. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, having generated an S bomb before for an app that's running in Kubernetes, I'll tell you, like, there's. Like, there's a lot of, like, how do I get started doing this? I know we're a little bit off topic, but, like, it's supply chain. And, you know, it's like, I can, it's a Go project. I can generate this from, like, the Go mod. That's part of it. But now I'm building a Docker image, and I have to think about the base layers here. And do I stitch this back together? Do I deliver this as two ones, like, like two different S-bombs? Like, and I think, you know, I'm personally looking at Kubernetes in the way that they're doing it and saying, okay, in in lack of a a standard way to do this, let's, let's follow that. Let's follow their lead. Yeah, it's kind of the early adopters at this point trying to do it and hopefully figuring out the right ways and the wrong ways and what works and doesn't. And they can tell all of us as we try to do it for our projects. It's awesome to see Kubernetes being so far ahead of like smaller projects. Normally, you'd expect something that big to kind of wait for the path to get a little bit more paved. But they're in a great position to start pushing this stuff forward. That's the fun part about this whole ecosystem. Yeah, I think there's, uh, <laughs> we have you on, so I have to ask. And this kind of leads into that as to why it's kind of gotten so much prominence. Their supply chain is starting to really be talked about. And that's obviously solar winds. Yeah. Like, <laughs> how has that affected how you think about this? And what have you seen in the ecosystem in general about that? And how, how significant was the solar winds event? I think is what I'm trying to say. It was huge. Uh, I mean, I think SolarWinds itself wasn't as terrible as some of the other things we've seen or as scary as some of the other things we've almost seen. I think it was just kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back here. So it led to a huge change. Um, you know, I don't want to blame them or you know call them out more than they already have been. Uh, but yeah, I think that, that event, um, not necessarily the incident itself, but that event has kind of led to Washington and all these other large organizations taking this whole area much more seriously. Like I've been worried about supply chain security for you know, years now, but up until you know maybe halfway through last year, people looked at me like I was crazy and this wasn't a big deal and they didn't care about it at all. Uh, it started to shift and then it was December, January of this year, all of a sudden everything changed when Biden writing an executive order about it. Um, everybody, every company in the world now is trying to figure out what their supply chain is, whether they know or not. <laughs> You've gone from wearing the proverbial tinfoil hat to saying like, oh, like I know this. This is I told you, like, come on, like let's Yeah, I, I don't know how to fix it yet, but I was I was worried about it a while ago. <laughs> so just going back a little bit on that one, because I'd love to hear it from your words, uh, can you just explain to us the solar winds event uh just quickly? And then also follow up to that question, would the, the SIG store tooling have prevented it if it was in place and ubiquitous? Oh, man. Okay, yeah. So this is a, a great topic, too. I was actually just talking to somebody on Slack over uh, one of the biggest problems with talking about actual supply chain attacks and events that happen is that there's always two halves to it, right? Um, as opposed to a lot of other breaches. There's the initial attack, right, where somebody gets into the supply chain. Um, and then there's like a pivot or a you know move downstream in the supply chain. Um, instead of just attacking a company um, and you know, ransomware in their database, you attack a company that's a vendor of software, like SolarWinds was in this case. Um, and instead of just attacking them, you stick something into the software they ship, and now it trickles downstream to all of their customers. And that's what happened here. It was a relatively—I you know, don't—I don't know the exact details, but it was you know a relatively standard breach of their build server, which then uh, let the attackers put a backdoor into the build server. So all the software that was built on that machine. Uh, it was now backdoored and got distributed to a bunch of sensitive places because they were you know, it was monitoring software that was running in privileged environments on U.S. government and other huge companies. So when you talk about preventing solar winds or something like that, um, you have to clarify which half you're talking about preventing, right? Uh, preventing the build server compromise is actually pretty easy, um, right? We know how to secure systems. Um, it's been a pet peeve of mine forever that for some reason, we're okay you know, running Mac minis under desks in offices to do builds um, that get shipped into production environments, but we would never do that. Like You would never run a production database on a Mac mini under your desk. It's okay for some reason to ship the binary that can talk to that database from there, though. Right? So we know how to secure systems. It's really just about treating build systems as production systems. Everybody's guilty of it. Um, you know, those really mini cube builds were on a Mac mini under my desk. You know, uh, every company is Jenkins uh, sitting on old desktops in a closet somewhere. Um, so it's just about changing that and making you know, build systems harder to attack. We're never going to get perfect, but we can at least make it harder than it is today. 
On the downstream side, which I think is where a lot of people are focused, um, unfortunately, it's a lot harder, right? If you get a binary from someone that you trust, uh, you can't prove what's inside of it. An SBOM can't prove what's inside of it. If there wasn't going to be a line in a SolarWinds SBOM that said malware here, that's not going to be <laughs> something you can use to trust and protect yourself. So no, I don't think nothing in SigStore would have prevented you know, either aspect of the SolarWinds attack from happening. But other you know, efforts going on now around just securing and hardening build systems and using ephemeral environments and all these other best practices would have at least made that initial attack a lot harder. Well, I think everybody knows I love when you start talking about ephemeral environments, so I can support that <laughs> statement more. But also, I will say that what's been in the back of my mind now, having had this conversation with you, is that as a compromised, um, if I was running uh, you know, the Department of whatever, Agriculture, and knowing what has happened, and then if everything was using SigStore, I could quickly figure out my internal systems, potentially, that were compromised without needing outside um, help from the solar winds community that's probably a little busy at that moment. So I do see that there's like self analytics I could be doing. So my internal response teams can actually respond without needing guidance from up above. Anyway, my, my brain races on this, but we're kind of running out of time <laughs> and we have to ask you, obviously Mark and I are engaged in this, but if we wanted to be specifically engaged and, and helping contribute to this, how does that work? Uh, do you guys have community meetings? How do we get involved if we want to be involved in SigStore? Yeah, there's a community meeting each week. Um, I am central time. So I will say, yeah, it is 1130 a.m. on Tuesdays, central time, uh, whatever that is in your own time zone. And we can get some links in the show notes probably for that. Um, we have a Slack that's really active. People ask tons of questions in there. That's also probably, you can probably find all of this on uh, github.com slash sigstore slash community. But yeah, the Slack or the community meetings each week are probably the best places to get involved. Is there... Um a specific type of feedback that you're looking for at this stage, either around Cosine 1.0 or getting ReCore up to 1.0, like more folks to use it, like specific types of environments or use cases that you'd love to see more of? Yeah, I think just try it out and tell us how you want to use this, a lot of this stuff. Like, I think we're still at the stage where organizations like know they should be checking containers before they get deployed, but haven't quite figured out the best way that fits into their workflows, um, fits into their build systems. So you just, yeah, Play with the stuff, start to imagine how you might use it in your organization, and then let us know if it works for that or not. Um, getting people to start to converge on patterns for where they sign, how they manage their keys, where they want to verify, whether it's at the node or an admission controller or something like that, um, is going to be really helpful for us in you know, designing the next wave of stuff here and making it usable. Cool. Dan, I, I really enjoyed the conversation. I learned a ton, and I'm actually happy to know that there's like a really smart team of people out here like literally doing nothing but working to solve and advance this this cause make it easier to use and like think about these these use cases we're trying at least so thanks for the, thanks for the conversation <laughs> that's all we have time for today if you're the maintainer of a cncf project and would like to be a guest on this show head over to kublist.com to learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com to check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks and content on sales, marketing, product, and more for founders of developer tools companies. And this podcast is brought to you by my company, Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem software to their largest enterprise customers. Check us out at replicated.com.